Hello and welcome to the From the Clubhouse podcast and it's a special episode so I'm live from the meeting room of our Woodley Golf Club. It's a beautiful day again. Uh, we've got a very special guest this morning which we'll get to later but as ever I'm joined by my co-host Steve Carroll. Hello Tom. So we normally talk about we've been playing golf don't we but we only recorded yesterday so there hasn't been a load of time has there? I've put a spanner in the works by taking my first holiday of the year. How dare I? I know, yeah. It is a bit of a, uh imposition by you. You do realise there's golf to write about, don't you? And podcasts to do and things. Well, it'll it'll have to wait for one week. Where are you going? Nowhere. <laughs> Nowhere at all. It's half term. I have a small child. Um, my wife has been bearing the holiday output at the moment, so now I've got to do my bit. Okay. I've managed to get to nearly June without taking a day off, though, so it's about time, really, isn't it? So you're going to be taking in the petting farms and such like of the North Yorkshire area? Is that what you're telling me? Apparently she wants to go to Dig, which, for anyone who's listening, is like an archaeology place in York. Oh. She's a very she's a very studious young lady, my my little girl, for fun the other day. For fun, the other day I caught her doing her times tables. I didn't know. I didn't know whether to say, "Where's your iPad?" or just be tremendously proud. <laughs> Shouldn't you be on your tablet? What are you doing? Why are you reading a book? <laughs> there she was, like pushing out her times tables. Yeah, that's quite suspicious. She's seven. It's quite suspicious behaviour. Um, should say that as ever, this podcast is sponsored by TaylorMade. Although I am thinking of holding that sponsorship ransom because I'm waiting for my golf clubs to arrive still. Uh, well, you see, if you're a special person like I am, they get you. They get the clubs to you within a week. I have noticed less than seven days for me. Tom. I have noticed there's something of a hierarchy actually in terms of the shipment protocols. And I, and I am at the top of it, and rightly so. Anyway, we'll get into the uh, we'll get into the nuances of my what's in the bag next week. I'm sure we better do anyway. Um, so today, yeah, we've got a very very special guest. Uh, the season's upon us. Um, we're halfway through the major season. Um, we don't normally get involved in uh, professional golf and made championship golf, but I think the From, House Club, the From the Clubhouse podcast makes an exception for the Open, doesn't it? Well, every club golfer loves the Open. Um, any low club golfer spends their time trying to qualify for it as well. Well, that is true. Yeah, I've done my I've done I've done my entry forms. June the twenty sixth is D Day. So where are you going to play then? Have you have you picked a, have you picked a venue? Uh, yes, I have. Yeah, I'm going to play here. I'm going to play at Old Woodley, hopefully. You get you, you, I thought... you only get to put down a preference. You don't get to choose. So given that in our podcast two weeks ago, you decried Old Woodley as a kind of jinxed place for you in the Open, does that mean that your Open dreams are over before they've even started? Yeah, but the decision tree is, it's not just limited to, is it jinxed, is it? It's also, is it near my house? <laughs> uh, which it is. And it'll make it handy for you when you come and caddy for me so you can write about the travails of open qualifying. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. So I've probably got the buzz. We've booked our accommodation. Uh, our press badges have arrived. It's not long away, is it? When this podcast goes out, I think it will be eight weeks, perhaps. Oh, crikey, maybe even less than that, maybe seven. And I feel like it's a little bit later this year. It's sort of a week. It feels like it's a week later with how the, the diary's falling. No, it's at the same time it always is. I'm sure it's I'm sure it's way late. Okay, I'll let you off. Anyway, so in order to get us all juiced up about uh, open fever, we've got a very special guest in Hoylake's course manager, James Bledge. Good morning, James. Good morning, Tom and Stephen. I, I didn't realise I was in the company of such uh, golf greatness, 
talking about qualifying for the Open. Steve, Steve's off 14 these days. <laughs> that's pretty, pretty much, good, yeah. isn't it? Well, I guess that's what's great about the Championship is the fact that it's open to everyone, so uh, I wouldn't have laced anyone's boots for something like that. You know, I just... Uh, that's a that's a standard of its own. So well done. I think there needs to be uh, some sort of um, addressing of the reality of it. I think I've tried to qualify for the Open. I think maybe fifteen times. I got through to final qualifying with a big asterisk during the COVID year when there were no international entrants and all of the all of the stages of qualifying took place at um, at West Lanks, which is one of my favourite golf courses. Uh, and they have like a little leaderboard in the afternoon of the final qualifying and I got to minus one and the qualifying was minus five. And I reckon that's the closest I've ever got to a panic attack. And then I finished with something <laughs> of a whimper. And reality sets in that you need to go to final qualifying. But is it, so you're not that guy from Phantom of the Open, then you actually can play if you were, if you were hitting the heights of minus one. Listen, no, but I listen, do watch, don't let him. I do that, watch that film from through my fingers because I think, oh God, that's, so, that's too close to the bone. That's too close to reality. <laughs> Uh, don't let him try and elicit any sympathy from you, James. He shot 73-73 in final qualifying. I did, yeah. At West Langs. That's pretty good, you know. It's not That's embarrassing, good. is it? That's the main thing. No, no, not at all. Not at all. I mean, I think these final qualifying events will be unreal this year because you have all the live guys that will need to find a way in. Uh, I, I was lucky enough to host, I think, I did four or five uh, final and qualifiers at uh, Royal Sink Ports, and, and it's returning there this year, which is really apt. Because uh, my old deputy Ben Williams, who's taken over after me, gets to do his first one, which I'm really excited for him. And uh, you always got the draw sheet in that morning or the week week before, sorry, and you could see some of the names, uh, and you were like, you were dying for them to turn up, and quite often they didn't, and it was really really disappointing because they either changed their mind or they'd found a route in some other way. Uh, but I think and I hope this year. Uh, West Lanks guys get some really good competitors and, and the same at Royal St Ports and all the other clubs it'd be brilliant to make it a big big event it could be a very odd year for that couldn't it it feels like there could be a real buzz around some of those um, final qualifying events the other anomaly which I never gets brought up is that if you're, if you're a woman and you've won a major I think you can go to final qualifying that's right isn't it Steve I think you. I think it's not even that. I think it's regional. Is that right? I think if you basically, I think if you basically in the, I think if you like won a major or you're in the top five in the world as a woman, you can get a spot at open regional qualifying. And you know the right people, and you're in the country, and you can stand on one leg for longer than fifteen minutes. There's not there's mm-hmm. not many criteria, but women can enter. Honestly, um, I think that'd be interesting, wouldn't it? I'd love to see that, especially. I mean. The, the length of this golf course now, I can't give you the exact number because I don't know off the top of my head, but I mean, it's so long that I just, I wonder there's a handful of ladies that would be able to handle that, I guess, wouldn't there? You know, even like your Charlie Hulls that hit it the furthest, it should yeah. be well below European tour standard, wouldn't you, when it comes to length, would that be right? It definitely, yeah. I mean, the, I think uh, we've got a very good female amateur who works for us called Hannah Holden, who's that plus three handicapper and driving the real strength of her game. She swings it about, a hundred, um, which gives her a sort of carry of about two three five, and that's well over LPJ tour average. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, yeah, you can knock a hundred yards onto that for these guys. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there is a big difference. <laughs> um, so it's so reassuring, isn't it? The sort of rhythm of the golfing summer. So we've got open qualifying, open. Right, James. So you're gonna have to tell us a bit about yourself because I have tried to do some research on your background, and despite you being splattered all over the internet, I can't find a LinkedIn page for you. 
God, that doesn't sound good, does it? Splattered all over the internet. <laughs> I don't know if I like that. I mean that in a non-biblical <laughs> sense. Uh, the, uh, what I can tell you is you've got a Scottish accent. God, it annoys me, people with accents. Very, very, you're very easy listen, James. Where are you from? Oh, that's good. I'm from Dumfries, uh, which is in the southwest of Scotland, just over the border. And I lived there until I was 24, and now I'm 43. So I've been away that whole time, uh, and I've managed to hold on to my accent. It might have softened over the years. Some of my friends, my more local friends, and when I speak to other Scots, I think my accent maybe gets a bit more slangy. But uh, and my wife's Scottish as well, so that kind of keeps me grounded. Hmm. Uh, my kids have got the weirdest accent because they were born in Kent, Scottish parents, and now been living on the Wirral uh, for 15, 16 months. So they, they're a little bit uh, gone from West Kirby to West Kirby. So it's it's kind of it's changing a little bit. <laughs> Sorry, what was that first one? That was a Kent accent, was it? Yeah, well, meant to be. I'm renowned for my accents. Okay. I'm sure you are. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, go- so Dumfries, so where is your golf? Southern S or somewhere? Uh, yes, I'm still a member at Southern S. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah, I was... Uh, I rejoined when I moved back up here as a country member, which is great. And I actually get good use of it. I try and kind of get home as much as I can. I'll be home next weekend and play half seven in the morning with the boys on a Saturday. I uh, actually had Ronnie McNeely, the, the secretary, and Neil Hamilton, the course manager, up last week playing here. Uh, so I keep in good contact with them. And obviously Sam, who I do the podcast, was going to be uh, looking at doing some minor renovations down there. Uh, with CDP, so there's a link to Southern S definitely. But my home club and where my heart is is Dumfries and Galloway Golf Club, little uh, golf course in the outskirts of town on the on the uh, Castle Douglas Road. And uh, I've still one of my great friends is the, is the head greenkeeper there. Uh, still have contacts there, and it's where I was kind of brought up from seventeen years old, sixteen year old, seventeen year old, whatever. Uh, through to 2024, 20, spent the first eight years of my life. It's amazing how formative that is, isn't it? I, I grew up at a, a Parkland course in... In fact, I denounced Parkland Golf last week, didn't I? That was bad. I grew up at a Parkland course in Lincolnshire called uh, Louth Golf Club. Uh, and it's it's proper salad day stuff, isn't it? I'm sure you were like me. You spent entire summer holidays camped at the golf club. It's difficult. Yes, yep. Difficult to I definitely... Behind, I and it's always I, I've I've said this kind of story in a few podcasts before, but the, there was a style on the thirteenth hole uh, where I used to walk up on a Sunday afternoon. This is in the days where your parents would like open the house door and just chew you out, and there'd been there'd be no sweat about it. But you freak out now when your kids leave the house. But I just trot on up the road a mile away from home and just sit in the style and watch the golf play through all day. Uh, I still picture it the nostalgia. I'm a big nostalgia person. I still picture it like it was yesterday. The balls kind of coming come hurtling in from left to right on this par three and I'd watch people play through all day and then when the last group was done I would jump the style and go and look for balls and come, come home at night with a wee Tesco's bag uh, of golf balls and that's when I dreamt about being a member at Dumfries and Galloway and it's when the uh, there was a waiting list you know back in them days that like you couldn't get in I wanted to join as a junior and I had to play on my junior golf at Lockerbie which uh, is a strange golf course, you know, up and down, up yeah, and down, up yeah. and down. It's uh, brutal. So uh, the uh, and sorry, I mean that in the design sense, not actual. I mean it was a great place to play my my junior golf and a lot of good friends there. But I finally got into uh, Dumfries and Galloway through an apprenticeship scheme, uh, and that was my foot in the door. And eight of the best years of my life working there, and, and it's. Uh, 
got to do every job and it's, it's amazing for an apprentice greenkeeper to be chucked on the big tools uh, from day one. But I, I've yeah. also got a nice kind of little story about my day one, if you'd like to hear that. Let's do it. Uh, I was sent down to the trees at the left-hand side of the first tee uh, to strim around the trees. Never used a strimmer before in my life, and the boss showed me. He says, this is what you do, just strim all around them trees. So I was strimming, and I noticed on the ground there was a lot of ash, a lot of black stuff. I never even thought what it was. Uh, so I strimmed around the trees, I was told, kind of hitting me in the face at times and stuff, I had my goggles on. Uh, later on found out it was legendary Queen of the South and Scotland goalkeeper Roy Henderson. Wow. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so no one had said that the ashes were scattered there. So oh I have got a bit of Roy a bit of Roy in me. I hope. I really hope none of Roy's children or, or grandparents, <laughs> granddaughters or grandsons. Or <laughs> but, uh, yeah, you go into the hole in the wand, I'm freezing at the pub, and you see pictures of Roy in the wall, <laughs> legend. And uh, I kind of always remember that. But, uh, you know, the story's probably a little bit exaggerated, but never let the truth get away a good story. Well, it's out there. There is a certain amount of truth. Scandal. When you were, I know you're supposed to dig. I know you're supposed to dig a future for yourself, James. But that's going beyond the pale. Yeah, but and and I mean, it couldn't have. I mean, I couldn't have got too much of Roy on me because I'm not a good footballer and certainly not a good goalkeeper. So. <laughs> so when you were, that, that Southern S thing's interesting. So you would have played golf at Silith, presumably quite a lot. No, uh, a lot of people say that you know, but there's actually, it's. People need to take away the split between Southern S and Silith because they're actually nowhere near each other. Well, you could probably wave at each other across the sea, but there's not really a link. They're so far away. It's probably about an hour and a half. Still. Well, I, I was, I was, it was the kind of uh, don't let the truth get in the way of a good story thing that I picked up on because I thought legend had it that there used to be a boat that went from Silith to Southern S. Oh, that wouldn't surprise me. I mean, they, they are, they are across the water from each other yeah, yeah. And, and they're very kind of similar ilk really, but yeah, I don't know if there's much of a link between the, the, the tracks, but people often, it's strange. It's like uh, if you say to someone, oh, do you like the music of Neil Young? And they say, no, but I like Neil Diamond. You know, it's like <laughs> there's no really, have you played Southern S? No, but I've played Silith. But well, that's like, what's there's no comparison. But oh, uh, Powfoot's next door. It's uh, it's the nearest links course to that. I mean, Dumfries and Gallo is not renowned really for its, for its like high-end golf courses and it's not decrying anything it's just a fact and uh, hence the reason why I kind of tried to go elsewhere to, to further my career really got you so I've just set off a QI alarm by saying that brilliant great start so uh, <laughs> so where did you head to after that starting in Greenkeeper then where was the next point of call uh, I I wanted to uh it depends how long this podcast is because I've got all these little things. I've got good little stories that I can kind of tell you short. But <laughs> I had. Have you ever watched the film Sliding Doors? I've watched it. Mm-hmm. Gwyneth oh. Paltrow. Yeah. Basically, it's a something happens. Uh, the kid's trying to. Uh, she's trying to. Gwyneth's trying to get on a train, and uh, there's a kid gets in her way, and it shows you the two different scenarios as to what would have happened if she made the train, and what would have happened if she hadn't. Uh, so I had one of these moments when I was at the hospital once and I came out and there was a red traffic light. So I could have turned left and just waited in the traffic for ages or turned right and went the long way around. And I took the long way around and I had a head-on car crash. Uh, it wasn't bad or anything, but it was enough to write my car off, got the insurance money back. And then I decided with that insurance money that I would uh, go to college for a year and then go abroad and work. 
uh, had I turned left at that traffic light, then that would never have happened. So it kind of leads me to here, and I might not be sitting here right now. You just never know. But I always found that interesting. So then I went in. I worked in uh, Norway at Micklegard Golf, a Robert Trent Jones course, uh, seasonal there. And then I came back and worked to take you through it fast. I worked at Gullen, Kings Barnes for three years, which is uh, one of the best places I've worked. I mean, it's just a jaw-dropping golf course. And it was as much fun working there as I'm sure all the golfers have playing it. You know, that's how good it is. Great team, great, treated well, great uniforms, privileges. It's just amazing. When were you there? Sorry, what what years was that? Uh, So let me think, 2000, oh God, 2007, I think I was, yeah, for three years. Did you live in town? I lived in Cooper for two years now, and Strother for a year. Amazing. Yeah. so that was really nice. Uh, it's an interesting thing. Must be an interesting thing um, being on the Greens team there. It closes, doesn't it, over the winter? Mm. Yeah, like six months, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it closes from like November right the way through till April, and it's uh, that's a that's a joy because you don't you can concentrate completely on winter projects, revetting bunkers, turfing paths, any new construction. They're always tinkering at Kings Barns to make it better. Uh, it's in my top five golf courses. I think I really. I think it's insane, uh, and it's just such a fun place to go. And any time I ever get invited back, it's a privilege to go there. Uh, but when again, I, I didn't ever want to leave there, but I, I really had to push on. It was kind of dead man's shoes at Kings Barn, so I went and took up my first kind of big, big role as a, a deputy course manager at the PGA National in Sweden at Malmo. So I was working with Kyle Phillips, who you'll have heard of. Uh, Kyle and I used to drive around in a golf buggy. Oh, yes, right, okay. Is that in Portugal? Yeah. Um, right. There was a press trip last week. I didn't go. We sent someone on it, and the pictures just look ridiculous. I like the way, James, you've just been following Carl Phillips around for a bit as well. Kings Barnes to PGA National. Yes. Well, I guess that's how I got the job, to be honest, you know, because there was that, the the link, the PGA National, two golf courses, it had a, a creeping bent grass golf course called the Lakes, where the Nordia Masters was played after I left. And then a fescue golf course called the Lynx. So I guess I was taking on for the Lynx. Uh, but uh, I things didn't really work out for me in Sweden there. There was quite a few reasons why I didn't. I mean, I'm perfectly honest. I'm not a closed book. Like, I didn't have a great boss. I, we, we didn't see eye to eye about a lot of things. And I didn't feel, feel, I, was, feel I was treated very well. Uh, so I packed my bags and came home. And the guy who got me out there was starting to build G West, uh, Grant Frogley with Lee Strutt. Wow, I didn't realize uh, that. So Grant had offered me a job back with him and Lee, at, uh, helping to build G West, and I was there for three years during during the recession. Uh, tough gig that, you know, building a golf course in Persia where it rains every day. But so what's what what has happened there? Has there ever been a round of golf played on it? I've played it. Okay, is that it? <laughs> no one, no, no one knows. Uh, I've jumped the deer fence a few times to play it in my last days, but like, I mean, the security now, obviously, you wouldn't be able to do that. But uh, it's David McClay kid design, beautiful variation holes, some of the best design golf courses I've ever seen. Uh, it was built to house 180 housing plots, and they're going to sell them between. Uh, uh, one and three million each or whatever and then there was a housing crash so I guess there's not the really desire to sell these now because they're not really worth as much money as what they were at the start so it's it's cheaper probably just to keep the course ticking over than it would be to sell it at a, 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 an undesirable 
amount for these plots, you know. It's a very strange uh, thing. It's when you play, I think it's the Queens, isn't it? You can see it from Glen Eagles, and it's uh-huh. out a massive golf course that just looks obviously pristine, not a soul on it. Is that very, very peculiar? As as and I just think we'd all kind of thought that you know the time's gone, it's not going to open, and there's only so much you can do, so many times you can set up a golf course without golfers. I mean, golfers, the guys listen to this are the reason why we do the job. Uh, and to set it up every day for no one and not get any feedback and not being able to play it yourself, it just, for me, it had enough. And uh, three years there, so took it from soil, essentially, through a, a playable standard, uh, was probably the best learning experience under Lee Strutt. Uh, really should be a super guy to get on your podcast, one of the most knowledgeable greenkeepers on the planet and a really good friend of mine and uh, my, my mentor as well. So I kind of look to him for whenever I've got issues, which is quite often. But uh, he's at Cabot Cliffs now in yeah, yeah. Canada. So uh, that is an amazing place. You know, G West, it really is. The clubhouse, it was a, I think it was a £5 million build and the clubhouse is £19 million. Uh, but again, it's a shell just now and... I pray that one day that it'll, it'll open back up and I hope, hopefully it will get going. But who knows, you know, with just COVID's come now, it just seems God. to keep on kicking us down all the time. That must be a very odd experience to have built a golf course from scratch and then literally had no one play it. That's It's pretty heartbreaking, actually. Yeah. You know, a lot of the stuff, we, you would go in, uh, you would see the green and you go in the next day and it'd be washed away because the weather's so extreme up in the Perthshire Hills. And then you would fix it. And then two days later, it'd be blown away again. And it's just, it was constant heartache, you know, and it was like no no pain, no gain, I guess, you know, and we learned a lot from it. But I don't think anyone will ever understand the hardships that went into building that golf course for it not to be played. It's a crying shame, but I guess we all got out something out of it. Yeah. But, you know, I got this job out of it kind of hang to an extent, you know, because it probably hardened me up and it made me uh, a better greenkeeper because I went through that. Yeah. Wow. So then you were on from there. Did, were you then down to Prince's? Oh, sorry, down to uh, Royal, uh, uh, Royal St. Ports, yeah, yeah. down in uh, Deal Kent. So there is two years as deputy. Uh, and again, it was the link. Uh, it was a guy who I, uh, my first assistant at Kings Barnes, Chris, Chris Bernard, who's now at Littlestone. He had the he had the course manager's job there. Or it was called Link Superintendent in them days. Uh, and then I was there for two years. He moved on. So I got his job. And then I was there for seven years. And seen through a, a complete transformation of the team. Uh, I mean, there wasn't there was only two people from the original team uh, after at the end of the nine years. Uh, a whole new fleet of machinery, new shed extensions, uh, and a massive uh, renovation with uh, Martin Ebert. Uh, amateur tournaments and loads of stuff. So it was Royal St. Ports is really where I cut my teeth, and that set me for good stead where I took over Royal Liverpool, where I'm now Lynx manager and have been for 15 months. I, I got the impression, James, from like seeing your social at the time that you went to Hoylake, that it was pretty hard for you to leave Singports. <laughs> yeah, I think people are probably, especially my Greens chairman, bless him, he's probably sick of me uh, talking about Royal Singports and you know, because I do rave about it so much, and there was so many great things that I wanted to bring to Royal Liverpool from Royal St. Ports because like the business model, it works so well and uh, I feel that everything that I kind of perfected over the years with the team and and, and my agronomy uh, really wanted to kind of 
bring a lot of it here. And I knew that it would work here because they are fairly similar sites and a lot of it has worked, a lot of it hasn't. But yeah, I think as a club, Royal St. Ports and Laurel Liverpool are so similar. You know, they've got amazing memberships. They're very relaxed. They like to have good fun. They like a drink, which is always a positive. Uh, they don't take their golf too serious. You think that maybe coming to some like a big, like a Royal Golf Club with a, a huge amateur history like Royal Liverpool and a, and a, and a, and a, an open history as well, I guess, at Royal Sinkports, you know, held three opens. Uh, but they still don't take things too serious. I like their matches. They love their lunches. And, you know, I'm, I love getting involved in that. They made me a full member. I've got my name and gold leaf up for winning a couple of tournaments. And what greenkeeper has ever had that at a Royal Golf Club? And what a way to make you feel special. And for that reason, you just work your backside off for them and big part of the club. And you would have done anything for them. And I, I think I really encourage golfers if there's any greens chairmans or secretaries listening or boards listen to this podcast to get your greenkeepers and get your uh, course manager managers involved in the club if you can uh, have them down there on tournament days have them speaking to the members have them playing their golf course jeez people you know they might have the odd go out playing golf again or whatever but playing golf actually is important as important as working I play on Sunday night with Sam and come off and rewrite the whole plan for the week you know because you think oh we need to do this and that this week you play a golf course like a chef tastes his food and you come off and you're like no nah, we don't actually need to do that this week i thought i was going to vet to cut the greens or groom them but they actually the way they were putting tonight were just good i don't want to stress them out too much or they need some water here or there and you walk around your phone you take pictures of things because you're discovering bits of the golf course you won't see from your buggy when you're driving around doing a check uh, and you come off the phone, you look at all your photos, and it gets written up in the snag list of the job list for that week. So, uh, I think it's the greatest thing ever to be a part and a member of the club and give that feedback. So I don't, I don't know where to start with that, James. I mean, what what an amazing analogy that is about a chef tasting their food, um, and they like it kind of gets us into the sort of next thing I want to talk about, but you, the, the sort of breaking down of the sort of them and us thing, um, particularly in traditional golf clubs, right, where you have the kind of gentleman membership and then you have the staff. Trying to sort of get past that, I think, is a, is a big thing about what you're describing. And like what you're saying there about t- tasting the food and getting out and playing the golf course, what like an unbelievably insightful thing. Like, I guess people can plan within an inch of their life, but you don't really know what it's going to be like on a day-to-day basis, what the weather's going to be like, how the ground's going to respond. So I guess you can only really tell that by playing, can't you? Mm, oh, definitely. And and, and your, your team as well, you want them to get to play so they understand the way the greens putter. Like if you've got a guy that doesn't play golf at all, having them changing holes is a, quite a challenge. And and if you think, what's the number one thing the golfer complains about is, it's usually hole positions or bunker rakes. By the way, the bunkers are raked, the style. So if you can put the, the your staff in, 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 in the kind of position of the golfer so they can see for themselves why they need to be doing these jobs, and it can only be a good thing. Yeah. Um, so one of, the, one of the reasons, I mean, we obviously wanted to speak to you because your course is hosting the Open, but you're also kind of at the forefront of this kind of professionalisation, as I guess I would sort of describe it, of, of course, managership or head greenkeepership. Um, there's a group of you, isn't there? I, I think I wrote in my notes that it's kind of rock star greenkeepers. There seems to be three or four oh, of you are kind of out there, uh, <laughs> out there fighting the fighting the good fight. What's all that uh, about? I, I know some rock stars. I'm certainly not one of them. But uh, yeah, what, I think I think we, we have we, we have spoke, tried. I spoke to Sam. We spoke to Sam Evans. Um, 
from Northants a couple of weeks ago. Um, I'm a good friend of John McLaughlin's. Um, and I just think there there's seem, seems to be a new breed of course managers who are sort of keen to build their knowledge, um, experience new things, kind of lift their head up from um, the weeds, pardon the pun, um, and, and kind of improve stuff, basically. I guess that this has all come around through bigger, through bigger pushing us, through going to Harrogate and bigger asking us to do things like the Future Tough Manager Initiative, uh, which is a great thing, and, and host talks, conferences, uh, and the more and more you do, the more and more you get involved. And uh, John, Sam and I were part of the first ever FTMI, Future Tough Manager Initiative, which is basically 20 guys who are looking to aspire to be course managers in the future. We get, and girls as well, there's been girls as well, more recently, uh, that are aspiring to be in these top positions, get together and learn about management techniques. And uh, I was lucky enough to be one of the, well, I was the first person to be asked to, turn from a student into a mentor. So there'd be three mentors sitting like the Alan Sugar boardroom uh, and the students would look to them for advice and uh, you really have to be kind of switched on when it comes to that because they can come to you in, in, a, in a whim in a second and say, oh, what do you think about that, Bledge? Mm-hmm. Uh, so we've kind of pushed it on from that. I mean, John, Sam and I did a So You Want to Be Promoted uh, class at Harrogate with Matt Plested as well from Stoneham. Uh, and John and Sam have just rewritten that uh, I think Lee Strutt started off as well, actually, Grant Frogley. So it kind of gets passed around. And these are these guys, all that I've mentioned, are all at the forefront of really trying to professionalise our industry uh, because we're not grass cutters. You know, we are biologists, we're uh, many accountants, we are HR experts, we're counsellors, uh, we, we're, we're project managers. The list goes on and on. I think whenever I give people an insight into my job it blows their mind as to how much we actually do uh, we're social media managers you know we, we do what we're doing just now i mean what greenkeepers get trained uh, to speak in a podcast i mean you think you'd find most would just kind of probably uh, shrivel up and i was that guy to an extent until i got punted out there uh, by sammy strutt to by the way Blaise, you're going to be speaking at the at the, the the southwest conference in front of 200 people next next month you know you need to you need to get yourself out there. And we're trying to teach people if they're coming through, they need to do the same. Uh, and uh, John, I mean, John is just unreal. He's written a five-stage management project program that you can read, everyone can read in the back of our Bigger magazine, which is our, I promise no acronym, so British International Golf Greenkeepers Association. Uh, and that's a very fascinating thing. But I mean, John would be more poised to tell you about that himself because he's so proud of uh, designing that. And he believes it's the way forward for uh, managing a team in the modern day. So, so just for our listeners, John, we're talking about John McLaughlin, who's the course manager at um, uh, Wallasey. Wallasey. The other course on the Wirral Peninsula. Um, do, you want, do you want to hear my John McLaughlin impression? Because he'd be so disappointed if I don't do it. I really on the... don't know if I do, but John on. McLaughlin. A... All right, Bledge. <laughs> he's basically just... He's just... He is basically just a <laughs> Harry Enfield scouter, isn't he? In Wellies, pretty uh, much. John, he is, I. John, but John, he, he listens. I know he listens to any of the podcasts I do, and I always give him a shout out in his native tongue. So yeah. there you go, John. Just going back to what what you were saying about communicating, because I, I I personally think, like as a club golfer, um, this is still one of the biggest barriers. I think for um, the communication between the greenkeeping staff and club golfers, and when that communication works well. 
the whole relationship, I think the whole dynamic changes, but it is difficult. And, and, the, and some people are extroverts and some people are not. So, I mean, having gone through that yourself, you know, the person who is reluctant to perhaps put themselves at the forefront and now look at you now on, on, on our on podcasts and, and, and across the internet and obviously the links manager for the for the course for the open I mean, what, what advice would you give to green keepers about how to put themselves out there and make them make that relationship between members and, and green keepers more effective and better and what sort of advice would you give to club golfers when it comes to giving their green keeping team some slack that's a super question you know i'm i'm a massive advocate for really good communication whether that be uh, down to your team, up to your board, or out to the members, and uh, I think there's so many golf clubs fall down in that in that way because how many times you walk into the bar after playing a medal and there's someone sitting at one of the tables and they've they've started saying something about why the greens are the way they are, and then that Chinese whisper floats right the way through the clubhouse, and then at the end of it you've got someone coming out with something completely different. If you can communicate the reason why you've done a certain thing to the greens and why they are they the way they are, then uh, they're hearing it from the horse's mouth, you know, and it's, it, it's it's so essential. And this is where it comes back to letting your greenkeeper play. I mean, yeah, it might be. I used to work a uh, James Lear, my old secretary, used to make, enjoy that I worked a Saturday morning. I'd have a half day and a Wednesday to look after the kids, and then I would work a Saturday morning. And part of that would be pledge coming to the clubhouse, have a coffee sit down with the members, speak to the members and tell them what you've been up to and stuff. And we didn't have any communication issues at Royal Sinkports because of that. Everyone knew the script. We were transparent. There was no secret squirrel club. We did uh, a blog that you could read. I did my Twitter. I did a newsletter. Uh, I did talks of stand up and do talks at AGMs or whatever. Uh, and more than, more than often, just happy just to stop people in the club and the car park and just say, how are you doing today? What, what, what do you think? How do the greens part? And then you give them the feedback and you tell them what's happening. And then that the, the real story starts to circulate around the clubhouse. Not what Tony said, having a, having a coffee in the morning, you know, when he's annoyed about the fact that there's been top dressing put on the greens. Oh, why is it always on a Monday we do it when, it's, when I'm playing golf? You know, it's just like, well, there's a reason for that. You know, it could be the fact that uh, the, the Tuesday might be the visitor's day, you know, and the club makes a lot of money through that. Or, uh, or I mean, there could be a plethora of reasons, really. So it's... Uh, Communication, absolute key, and yeah, it's, it was it was our way to success really at Royal St Ports. It's brilliant. Um, right, we need to talk about Hoylake. We're supposed to be talking about Hoylake. Let's talk about Hoylake. <laughs> uh, what do we know? Where did it start? It's it's got quite a strange provenance, hasn't it? It's, it was kind of it was laid out by the other Morris. I'm led to believe. Uh, 18, 1869. Uh, there's been a a lot of a lot of architects involved but a cult as well you know it was it was uh built i guess on on flat land with the 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 race course going around uh what is known as the range now so you see that you'll see the two pineapples behind the first tee pineapples were i think were the start and finishing line and that was a commodity that that the uh the the the, the race winner race winning jockey used to get i can't imagine a a horse eating a pineapple but maybe that's quite a funny uh, image to take away but uh yeah so they would race around the the range so which is up uh, open third and when i say open third is for those who are listening the course is played in a different routing for the open so the open third, which is a dog leg, the flat dog leg, round the corner, almost at right angles. 
uh, as the first hole for the members, which is the most brutal starting hole in world golf. It's, it's an absolute <laughs> nightmare, isn't it? I just... <laughs> I've only because it's your first hole in front of clubhouse. You're two twenty to the corner, then another one ninety in into it's, the wind. Oh, God, it's not a, it's not a driver, which is sort of a big problem on a first tee, isn't it? Not for you. Well, it's, it's not a driver. You really, all you want to do is get the thing with the biggest head on out, right? And you can't, can you? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I but you I'm saying that. Go, I played. Sorry, on you go, Steve. You, you can't even go left either, can you? Because there's yeah. quite there's some thick fescue there. So I mean, you you, you basically have to hit it straight, otherwise you're in all well, the, sorts the, of. Bother. And also, the further left you go, the more you point at the out of bounds for your second. That's the other problem. And then the further in you've got as well. Yeah. So you've got a longer clubbing, which means more risk of going right. Uh, I feel a bit played with. I know. Well, I've only budded it once because I had I hooked it onto the second tee, and then I've pulled the putt right along the tee. But uh, Ian Finnis, uh, who you'll know, Tommy Fleetwood's caddy, we played with him uh, last year, and he stood up without a practice swing straight out of the car. And he says, "Can I head over the corner, Bledge?" I was like, "Yeah, yeah, you, you probably you probably could, I because he's quite a big boy, you know." And he stood up with this thing and he just whacked it right over the corner, 80 yards away and hit a, hit a sandwich to a foot. And nice. I was like, well, that's the way to play it. But he says, I, w- I won't advise it. Tommy does that in the open. You'll be, oh, then boys will be hitting five iron up to the corner and then a six iron, seven iron in probably. But yeah. uh, but going back to that, so the, the, the for the open, they play 17 and 18 first and then they go onto the third. Uh, then they only go onto the first, which is the third. So we're, I will speak this morning in, uh, in open hole routing. Uh, so yeah, so the, the the race course goes round that flat area, and then there's a the holes basically play up into the dunes, and then uh, the course from uh, the tenth hole onwards, ten right the way along the coast gets uh, plays amongst the dunes, which is stunning, and some of the most amazing views over the D estuary and up into the Pièce de Résistance, which is our new seventeenth hole. But uh, don't ever let the kind of comments from people fool you about it being flat. It's uh, it's actually far from it. I mean, it's intricate. There's uh, it's there's so many amazing kind of little undulations around the greens, and, and actually very. I mean, take it from me, cutting it with a, a, a an approach more. You know, the approach mores it's it does bank quite severely in a lot of these areas. Uh, but it's I mean, you're talking about flat golf courses. St Andrews is flat. Carnoustie's flat. You know, they're, they're all on flat bits of land. So they should be. Like, it does my head in when people bang on about elevation change. Um, and the sort of, People love a raised tee, don't they? Because they can see the whole hole. I would think that if I made a list of my favourite golf courses without trying to think of flat ones, they would all be flat. Um, like, There's a big difference, isn't there, between like you've just listed a few... Uh, Scottish links, like Scottish links, particularly, I think, tend to be that kind of um, stretched out on on genuine pieces of links land. I think when you go over to Ireland, or there's obviously the courses up on the Liverpool coast that are more in the dunes, you do get kind of, I guess, more dramatic elevation change. I'm not sure that makes them better golf courses. Um, and there's there's plenty of variety at Hoylake, right? It goes like you you have the sort of racetrack section, then it goes out onto the coast where you do get the the dunes and the kind of, I guess, more dramatic. Uh, holes or more picturesque holes great changes in direction as well you know you see everything in front of you it's a very i think the people love it because it's such a fair golf course uh i mean there's nothing there to trip you up uh the the bunkering's really good uh, and the bunkers essentially are small but the catchment areas are decent so the bunker makes itself essentially a lot bigger at that part because you could still hit the fairway but 
is going to gather into the bunker. So you really need to plot your way around. Hence the reason why the world number one golfers at the time uh, won round Hoylake. You know, who's who's won just now? Is it Ram or Scheffler? Who's won at the moment? That's a great question. Ram, I think. Uh, Scheffler, just. So, I mean, got to be like, we all have absolute hot favourites for the Open, I think. And, I mean, the pair of them will be, the, will be that 100%. You know, good... Don't, Long don't, and straight, this is what you uh, need. Don't uh, don't spoil my quiz for Steve in a minute about Hoylake Open winners. And don't Google it, Steve. Oh, right. Okay, right. I'll maybe just have done then. <laughs> but, uh, you know, you'll come to Hoylake and you'll find Tiger's 2-iron in the, in, the, in the cabinet. He's Nike 2-iron, which with an X100 shaft, which uh, a very small percentage of your listeners will probably be even be able to hit over 100 yards, I would have thought. <laughs> but uh, there's... Uh, I, I mean, it is a tremendous golf course. I think the more I've played it, the more I've enjoyed it. Uh, it's very different from Deal. I mean, Deal is it's essentially on a flat bit of land, but it's hugely rumpling. Uh, and St. George's next door are the same, and Prince's, you know. So they've got three stretch of amazing golf courses, but varieties of spice of life. I think Hoylake does its thing, and uh, there's a lot to it. I mean, the history is huge. Uh, and our members love it. They absolutely adore it. All the young, all the young boys, you know, the, the Colts we call them, the, the boys at Stag Links. If anyone looks on Instagram at Stag Links, you watch them boys. You know, they're they're all quality golfers, and they just worship the place. You know, they have so much fun here. And um, so, the Open fifth, the short four, is that is 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 that still a blind tee shot? Open, open. So open fifth is the long par five. Okay, so, so a open, open four. Yeah, that's the one. So you, you, right. So you're talking the blind shot had the hedge. Yeah. Open eight. Is that gone? It was the six. The hedge is gone. Yep, the hedge is gone. Internal out of bounds, which won't come into play for the open. Uh, fairway narrows into a humped, humpback fairway, uh, and then out towards where the Welsh hills in the background. Uh, cracking hole. Got you. The hedge is gone. So the golf course. Um, yeah. It's 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 one of my favourites, definitely. And the the club itself, you touched on it earlier. It's it's like a proper golf club, isn't it? Um, you have the Harold Hilton every year, which is kind of a pretty infamous drinking event, as far as I'm as far as I'm told. <laughs> you ever played in that? Never. I'm not good enough for that. No, no. I don't. I don't do competitive golf. I, I like. Uh, I play. I play. I love matches. You know, I love playing in matches. So if the club were to play, uh, just say. Wallace, for example, and I was invited to that. It's the kind of thing that I would like to do. You know, I, I don't, I don't really play competitive golf. But. Fair enough. So come on, then, Steve. Before we finish this golf course section, let's have it. Can you please list the Hoylake winners? I was looking for my mighty wins history of Hoylake book. <laughs> <laughs> I can't find oh, it. No. All right, you got um, one of them. Good, good. Um, so Rory McIlroy. Let's get the easy ones out of the way first. Rory McIlroy. Uh, Tiger Woods, uh, Roberto Di Vincenzo. Oh, that's a great shout! And now I start. Now I'm going to start to struggle. You've um, got a couple of multiple. You've many... got a couple of multiple winners that are just sort of like open winner QI. Just say their name because they probably did win there. Uh, Peter Thompson. Yep. Um, great right. One of them won it. Uh, oh, which one though? Not Varden. No. Um, so I'm going to go for Braid. Dope. Oh, the other one, Taylor. <laughs> yeah. Damn it. P- process of elimination. Um, Pretty famous amateur, wasn't did... it? Oh, John Ball. No, much more famous than that. Harold Hilton. 
Horace Hutchinson is one. No, the most famous amateur of all time. Oh, Bobby Jones. <laughs> yeah, Bobby Jones. Uh, Bobby Jones oil painting at the top of the stairs. Someone. I to know. Yeah. As, as, as he was berating me for that, I was picturing the painting. Yeah, I mean the the artwork in in, in the Hoylake Clubhouse. I don't know if if anyone's never been to Hoylake. The, the green fee is worth it alone for to come in the clubhouse. The uh, we've just had our new uh, painting done for the for the 151st of the new hole. It's absolutely stunning. Uh, American uh, painter, I can't remember his name. Uh, and that's that's ha- that's hanging up there now. But I mean, all, the old oil paintings and the story behind it. You get Andy on the front desk, the 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 guy who welcomes you in to to give you a clubhouse tour. It's just unbelievable, you know. It's it's the the best. To, to be fair, Tom, I think I should get some kudos for mentioning Hilton Hutchinson and various and John Ball and various other amateurs before the greatest amateur of all time. Well, I mean, that's all. It was school, almost right? like you were showing off. Yeah. So, in fairness to you, you can have Sandy Heard, Arnold Massey. That's always a famous open quiz question name. Only French winner. Yeah, right? Hagen. Someone called Alf Padam. I don't think I've ever got right when people ask me open winners. And Fred Daly. It's absolute League of Nations stuff, in fairness, Hoylake winners. You've got two Northern Irishmen, two Englishmen, an Australian, an Argentinian, two Americans, a Scot, and a Frenchman. A lot of old-timers in there as well, aren't there? A lot of, like, Hall of Famers in that list. Yeah, there are, yeah. Some big names, And I need to get this story right, but it's really interesting. So there was a guy turned up last summer, and this is is 100% true, and... He was standing looking at the trophy cabinet, and in there was, I think it's Peter Thompson's forward, I think. Uh, and the guy's he's an Australian guy, and he's like, oh, "I'm here. To, uh, my, my dad played here years ago. In fact, he won a he won a tournament here." And Andy was like, "All oh, right, who was that?" And he says, uh, uh, "Peter Thompson." And he was like, "Yeah, look, he won the he won the open. That's his that's his that's his forward." And and the guy was like, "Ah, oh, cool. I've got the rest of the clubs in the car. That's what I'm playing with today." And he'd brought Peter's uh, winning set of bats up to, to play Hoylake with. Pretty amazing. And the one missing out of it is in the trophy cabinet. That's pretty cool. Isn't it awesome? Yeah. yeah. Um, so you've been, you've been in post sort of 15 months, right? Since, since January last year, yeah. So, and the Open has been bumped a year. So mm-hmm. the, the timeline's quite odd, I guess, in terms of you, the Open was supposed to be there last year. You'd have just joined... So what what has that been like? You, you obviously knew the Open was coming in twenty twenty three when you joined. Like what? How does that make you feel? I mean, is it? It's presumably exciting. It must be pretty nerve wracking as well, right? I, I feel okay about it to be honest. I mean, firstly, the the fact that it was bumped doesn't make a I know I owe a difference because the job kind of came up after that anyway. So uh, when the job came up, I knew that it was obviously it was going to host the Open and it wasn't going to be very long actually. And and you kind of question is that going to be enough to to make my stamp on it, but I guess I thought I would definitely say we have done. Uh, but I don't feel too nervous about it. You know, things grow gradually, the infrastructure grows gradually. Uh, I live on site, so I put a lot of work in. You know, work long hours. Uh, don't have to always. You know, I don't. I'm I'm not stupid with that. I don't run myself into the ground with it. Uh, I do what I need to do to get a job done and kind of maintain my physical and mental health at the same time because living on site I guess could do that to you especially with all this going on all the time but I've got a great team around me and that includes uh, the Greens chairman and the secretary all the guys at the club, my agronomist Alistair Beggs uh, and I guess the extended team, my wife really helps out with everything she understands 
very understanding person when it comes to have to do extra work or or canceling things or running out at nights to do stuff. But you know, you, you you plan and prepare really well, and you can't fail. And I think since the second I got the job, even working my notice at deal, uh, started planning for this event, and every little thing now is just a little tinker, a little change. But I don't think anyone, and I hope. It's going to be great to show the masses one day, but no one will ever understand how much work goes into this when it, between my stuff. And I mean, the more mind blowing thing is all the stuff behind the scenes is just unbelievable, whether that be road networking, uh, all the kind of services, the grandstands, the tent and uh, security, uh, all these scenarios in case things go wrong, this, that, and the other. We won't get too much into because it, it's, it's you could talk about another four podcasts on it. But uh, it's just there's a lot of heroes out here. You know, I just play a small part in the cog, but there's a lot of people that I guess make me look good and make my they work good, look good. But and I mean, I'm not just saying this, but it's a team effort, and the team goes well out beyond the green staff. You know, it's a, there's a lot of people involved in this. The biggest tournament in the world, biggest championship in the world. What is what is what is the sort of feeling around the club? Um, so you're obviously you're a member, and you obviously speak to members on a day to day basis. I always wonder whether um, you always think, oh, wouldn't it be amazing to have an open at your golf course? And then I always think, I wonder if there's some people who think mm, a bit annoyed that the stands are up and I can't do this and I've got to hit off a mat. Is what is the feeling sort of universally excitement, or is this uh, is there any sort of curmudgeon about it? Nah, completely. They're, they're absolutely buzzing about it. You know, I, I don't hear any negative. They, they they go out and they're so excited to play amongst the stands. And I mean, like with Hoylake being flat air on the opening holes, the, with having these stands up and the tents up, the the, the dimension adds to it. You know, the, like we're playing through channels now of infrastructure. It's unreal. There's no better feeling for any of your listeners that have played an open course with the stands up. The ball sounds different. You know, if you're hitting a golf ball, one, probably the most enjoyable shot I've ever hit in my life is when I played off the first at Royal St. George's a couple of nights after the Open. The noise off the driver ricocheting around the stand is just incredible. These guys are getting to play it day in, day out, doing that, and they, they love it. There's no... In fact, when it comes to the mat thing, we played off mats on all fairies last year, uh, from the back end of last year, from October. Uh, and then now we've moved to mat zones, so we have about... 10 mat zones so they've got to drop out they've got to play for a mat in these zones members are like no let's just have 18 mat zones we just want to give them the best golf course we can uh, so even even though they don't have to play off mats outside these mat zones they do they still do because they embrace it that much they're 100% on board 100% excited and you know it's uh, any of the meetings you go into with a lot of our members are volunteering to help they just love it, you know. They absolutely love it, and they're always they're catching you in the course, and they're like, "You excited, Bledge? You excited?" And I'm like, "Oh, just try, just working away." That, I mean, that is that is good. That is good to hear. It's just it's just me that's a curmudgeon. The stands thing, <laughs> like I don't know how how many times I've done that, but you, quite often you go to an open venue and the stands aren't there, and the holes look totally different, right? I always think that Royal St mm-hmm. George's actually. I think that's a good example of that. Um, but you're absolutely right. But, you do, it's a, t- a total buzz being able to hit shots into a green with that um, particularly the 18th green it opens nowadays with that sort of full wraparound stand it's it's absolute amphitheatre stuff isn't well, it? 
pretty much just finished it yesterday. I think like the 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 bottom scaffolding was all getting uh, covered up with the 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 dark blue navy logo netting, uh, and the amount of people that come off eighteen and get a picture taken. And I've actually noticed that it feels like the tough conditions have picked up on the eighteenth green uh, since the grandstand went round okay. it. You know, I think it's maybe creating a little microclimate where there's a little bit more moisture. Uh, but the the 18th green just looks un, unreal just now. <laughs> Our best green by a mile. It'd be, it'd be warmer, uh, wouldn't it? That'd be part of it. Ah, uh, it yeah. potentially could be. Yeah, you know, I could I could actually get out with the soil temperature probe and just test it when get time. But uh, it's it's it does look really good. But then that could bring its own challenges as well. You know, you need to keep an eye on it for uh, speed. Essentially, that might be one of the greens that gets cut. A couple of times extra uh, the morning of, so they all hit the same uh, the same uh, level of speed that we're going, trying to achieve amongst them. Yeah. So, um, essentially, you touched you touched on turf condition there, and we sort of mentioned previous Holly Lake Opens. Like we, we all obviously remember that Tiger Open when it, I don't like we we you've mentioned nostalgia on yesterday's podcast. We were talking about rose tinted spectacles, although mm-hmm. uh, I mispronounced that somewhat embarrassingly. Uh, and that that Tiger Open, that was your kind of quintessential sort of dusty, uh, bouncy Open, wasn't it? And I think he famously didn't use his drive all week. Did he not hit in a bunker at all all week? He was just laying back on every hole. What do you think? That's 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 one of my clearest memories, Tom, in golf, because um, I was actually there on the Sunday. Do you remember when Tiger hit that iron in to eagle the par five? Was it like the sixth? Um, I was stood there. I was stood right by that green when he hit that shot to about five feet. And I can still remember it like absolutely vividly, what, 20 mm-hmm. years on, nearly 20 years on. Amazing, amazing day. I've never seen a golf course like that, just completely yellow. Yeah, um, it was. With it that, was with, with that so. pure brown, yeah. It was amazing. Even the greens were browning off, weren't they? You know, they were, whereas in this, this day and age, you would you would, you would would keep kind of a, a moisture control across the, the whole green. So it was, it was the same from front to back. Uh, whereas back then, I mean, it was... The, the green was browner in certain bits than it was in the other, so you're going to get different bounces on different bits of the green. Uh, and then the McElroy Open was obviously, it was emerald green, wasn't it, because it rained. Uh, they, 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 but, call, yeah, they called it off get, for yeah. rain. I think that must be the only time in the history of the Open that they just said, oh, the weather's too bad, so we're going to stop for an hour. Do you remember that? Mm, they had a 2 T start, yeah. didn't they? Yeah. It's like, this is what we came mm. for, lads. We came for the bad weather. Ah, yeah, well, I think you know they'll, they'll be keen. They'll be keen to push on. You know that that's they always are. They don't. Yeah, yeah. And the last thing they'll ever want is a call off, a suspension, or late lateness in play. You know they want everyone to finish on a good time at night, and we do as well. You know because we want to get our work done and then get to our beds because we're up at oh, we're up at like I don't know half three every morning for ten days straight and yeah, yeah, bed at about eleven at how, night. It's been how a long, tough week? How long have you been in open mode for? Like, have you literally been sort of prepping for this week since you started? And have, exactly that. Yeah. Have you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. Yeah. So uh, from the from the day dot uh, documents get put on your desk saying that this is what we need. We need uh, these areas uh, cut down for infrastructure. Uh, we need this extended. This is going to be coming on this date, and then you start planning your open team, looking for sponsors for all your clothing, uh, thinking who could do what job. Then you're thinking about you're working back from the open to to, to see uh, what areas need done at what point. So then it's like a like a domino effect. You know, if if I need this guy needs to come in to do this part, then I need this part to work first uh, without kind of getting too much depth. But we also had to uh, before I came, the guys. Uh, Reverted forty bunkers 
uh, the year before, and last winter they'd done another forty plus, and we put two extra bunkers in as well on one in sixteen. Right. So inside left on one over the the bunker there. So like the both bunkers are at like a good carry distance now, uh, and then up the right hand side of sixteen. Uh, I mean these bunkers, the boys have done such a good job with them, led by my my, my deputy Paul Gardner, who's he's the bunker king around here, really like a whip cracker, <laughs> but. To, to revet 40 bunkers in the winter, get them all done, bedded in, and then we start working on the faces to make sure they're all nice and bright and clear so they can be seen off the tees, no grass on them, all showing off the beautiful revetting work, a la Dornock, Skibo kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, so how do, you, how do you manage that from a member point of view then? Because they're not just smashing balls into these revet, nice new revetted bunkers constantly. Uh, great question as well, yeah. So we... <sighs> We have bowled the bunkers up, you know, like we, we use like a soft floor broom that you would sweep your floor the with ball rolls into to get middle. a really packed, yeah. yeah, exactly, to get a packed edge. The ball rolls into the middle. But we've also been saying to people like in friendlies, like, if your ball's up against the face, please just drop it back in the middle or place it back in the middle of the bunker because, you know, the last thing we want is people taking chunks out of the face. But you know what, if they do, We'll never ever get perfection. I've I've learned that. You know, we do want everything to be absolutely perfect. But you're talking about a, a rustic, natural links golf course. If there's a couple of chunks out there of vetting, then it'll just have to be. You know, I'm not I'm not going to cry about it or whatever. I'm not going to look to start repairing things because they end up just doing more damage. God, you say some good things. <laughs> I mean, I just nothing frustrates me more than going to uh, a links course that's been um, presented. Try to be presented perfectly. Like, there's a couple of like I'm not going to name mm-hmm. names, but there's a couple of examples in this country where they just had fortune spent on them to try and get the turf perfect, and they just they just don't play like a lynx anymore. There's got to be a little bit of the shabbiness, I guess, is the right word, and a little bit of like some just stuff left to nature for the for the ground to play properly. I think. Um, you look at. Uh... You're looking at a couple of things here. You look at fairy rings, the disease that we've all suffered for years on Lynx golf courses. And that you, you watch, you watch back all the old opens on, on on Sky 405. You know you can see the fairy rings everywhere. This is something we've never been able to battle. And at, at points, I'm just like, we you know, we try our hardest to make sure they don't get any worse by using surfactants, by spiking them, using uh, 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 azoxystrobin fungicides to try and to stop the fungal disease and stop it getting looking worse. But you never beat it. Never. Things like that, things like ryegrass on on Lynx golf courses, Yorkshire fogs. You know, these are uh, invasive grasses that we've never really well. We had, we were at one point a few years ago, uh, before lockdown, we were able to control these grasses chemically, but now no longer registered. So our hands are tied a lot. You can cultural controls like verti cutting. Can it be argued? It, it could maybe make it a little bit better, but it never ever gets rid of it. You know, it doesn't at all. So these are things that we just need to kind of deal with. And this is when you're talking about a natural bit of land. I mean, Deal Royal Sinkports was the perfect example of that. With five different grasses on the greens, uh, and we took a decision just to kind of play with what we've got. Yeah. And the members were delighted with that. No one, no one, no one's bothered. So I mean, a good message to go to your golfers is that that grass is actually better than no grass. Uh, Get it cut, get it rolled. Yeah. Look after it best you can, and make sure it's it's reasonable speed and it's smooth, and that's all that matters. I've just been to, uh, without getting too deep into this agronomy thing, I've just been to uh, San Diego, um, played a load of golf over there, and it was interesting speaking to a couple of um, course managers. And they've all sort of 
um, tried to get away from Poa Greens and overseeded with Fescue and Bent and all the rest of it, and they just can't get it to take because the Poa just comes back through. And a couple of the like the real top end private clubs that we played at have just given up and they've gone back to Poa because they've just said, look, we can get better services with Poa. We know that people are a bit sniffy about it and it gets bumpy late in the day, blah 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 blah. But we can that's that's what's wants to grow here, so we're just going to go with it. Um, mm-hmm. So you did get what you're given to a certain extent, don't you? Oh, Chambers Bay have gone back to Poa, haven't they? They they were they famously Fescue Greens, and then I remember watching Chambers that that was absolutely slated because the worst combination you can have is Fescue and Poa. Yeah, yeah. Fescue fine leaf blade, Poa fatter leaf blade grows low but flowers quite intensely at this time of year. Yeah. And and another thing of your listeners are listening to uh, uh, just now, they're all members of your Patland golf courses. Take it easy on the greenkeeper in May. Poor flowers, it's a fact of life. Uh, the greens will be bumpier. They might be a bit slower. You get a spurt of growth. There's absolutely really, there's very little you can do about it. There's wee things here and there, but there's some great surfaces with poor. Sunningdale, some of the best greens I've ever played on. Uh, I mean, you probably played Tory Pines when you were out there. I mean, Tory Pines, I'm sure, poor poor greens. Uh, but I mean, for, to do a bent fescue conversion, it's all about uh, backing off your nutrition, backing off the water, raising the height of cut, all these things that poor doesn't like. But at the same time, golfers don't like that either, you know, because they're, they're paying a lot of money to play their golf and they're coming and playing on greens that are essentially treacle. How long can you get away with uh, telling your golfers, oh, I just need another year, I just need another year? Yeah. Uh, it's a battle, it, is, it really is, and I feel sorry for them. But here we just kind of try kind of fighting the good fight in the in the autumns, uh, the perfect time for overseeding, keep pumping the fescue into them. I really love bent grass as well, fescue bent blend, cheese, it's like cheese and onion. <laughs> we do have poor in our greens here. We do have bits of Yorkshire fog. I wish that chemical would come back. So okay, I keep on saying to Dan Lightfoot from St. Gentle, Dan, you need to get registration for this panoxidant, but... It's uh, it's not happening, you know. It was, it was a great tool for greenkeepers, but the world is changing when it comes to chemicals now, yeah. and we're all looking to be more sustainable. Yeah. So we've got um, so you you sort of immediately into open prep the day you start. So if you are you just sort of handed a manual and said this is how you do it, this is what you do in January, this is what you do in February, and and how much do you get to speak to other? Uh, open venues or other royal golf clubs that have had that sort of RNA involvement like how how much is it a collaborative effort well I guess there's no real manual I got this job because I know how to set a golf course up for uh, open championships you know I know the standard that's required uh, and the board know that and the agronomist Alistair knows that we work together very closely we do work with other golf clubs we catch up we have a, a we had a meeting up at Trin this year with all the golf clubs where we share ideas uh, I speak to Graham Beat at Port Rush a lot. He's a really good friend of mine. Uh, all the other open course managers are just amazing. You know, they're all great guys, uh, and uh, very exciting as well. That my one of my best friends, Sean uh, McLean, from who was at Prince's when I was at Deal, he got the Burtdale job, so we're close up here. And then you, you so we share ideas as well. But there's, uh, we know exactly how they want the course to play. We do R and A course walks. We check in, which are actually really enjoyable. Uh, it's a it's a democracy, so we, we talk about everything. There's no kind of uh, you will do this, you will do that. It's far from it. Uh, we are the experts in our field as well, and we, and we all strive to get the to complete the common goal here. But there's it's uh, it's a very stress free environment so far. Such wood, uh, but yeah, it's there's no there's no book. We know what we're doing. Uh, 
And to be honest with you, we ain't far off it just now. I don't think anyone that comes to play here just now, you'll get a course that's not a kick in the backside off open condition. So just a we, lot of bit of shining up to do. We, could we have, have the open next week? Uh, I wouldn't say. <laughs> you, know, you know what? You probably could actually. I wouldn't want to because there's a lot more I still want to do. You know, we've got a bit of weed control to do yet, a lot of weed picking. We've been hand picking a lot of weeds actually, kind of to, to save money on and bother more effective than using chemicals just now. Uh, I've got some bits of grass to grow around bunker tops where it have been kind of hit hard. So not quite in a position, but I dare say it would be acceptable to, yeah, 100%. And, and it wouldn't, I mean, we're going to get a, a load of greenkeepers from the other open golf courses that are coming to help us the weeks before. So we will have... The, the, the day's running up to it, 47 guys on staff, so on, 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 on site, so including me and Alistair Begg. So 45 of a team actually on doing the work. Wow. Uh, that will we'll soon fire through the work then. It'll be done fast, efficiently. And the more you cut grass, the better it gets. Uh, the more it, it, it knits in and it shines up and the definition. I mean, the rough started to grow nicely here, which is good because we've had a wet spring, wet-ish spring. Uh, so we have got great definition. Uh, you can still see into it though, you know. There's the there's you can get out of it, you know. But there's we've got still two months of growing to go, so let's see. And if you, I mean, that's pretty amazing. So you, you know, you're going to get up to a team of 45 in the run up. So how 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 much bigger is that? Is that like times four basically? Stand, your standard team? Uh, we've got 12 people just now, yeah, yeah. Uh, including myself and mechanic. Uh, but I, I also we, we take on some kids at work weekends doing bunker raking and stuff, which is good. Uh, but the volunteer teams worth speaking about as well. We, we've got some a really diverse bunch of guys from all over Europe, really, and obviously, well, Lee Strutt's coming from Canada as well. I've got a guy from Sweden coming. But what I wanted to do is make a mix of the team from like boys just coming into the industry that are young right the way through to guys have got a lot of experience, so then they can offload their wisdom on the youngsters. What a great opportunity to network and uh, get the kind of the feeling that I got about greenkeeping, you know, at the start when I was streaming Roy Henderson. But the, the, these are, you know, great, great opportunities for everyone. But the, the coolest thing we did was uh, uh, on Twitter, if anyone wants to kind of have a look back and follow us, it's just at James Bledge. Uh, they, we did an apprentice competition where I asked five questions and they all got collated in a, on a, on a, a Google form. So I... I could see everyone's answers to the questions. The first one was like, uh, our 17th hole is called Little Eye. If you were going to rename it, what, what would you name it and why? And I took all the names of the people out and all the names of their golf clubs so there was no prejudice. And I went through all the questions and marked, there was 80 people put in for this. It's unbelievable. From all over the world, actually. And I marked them all one to five. And there was three guys. So there was a guy from Kings Lynn, guy from Presswick, and a guy from Abbey Hill in Milton Keynes. Yeah. So very different golf courses. And they're three young apprentices. They're all about 17, 18. I'm going to have them hand-cutting greens for the Open. So what, a, what an honour that is. What a privilege oh, that these young boys are going to be actually out doing the most important job. And one of them was actually on uh, Anglia, ITV Anglia News or something like that, you know, it was sentence. That was absolutely brilliant. Yeah. So I'm excited to see these guys. Never met them before. Uh, we uh, we've secured over £10,000 worth of sponsorship for our T-shirts, jumpers. Uh, the boys are going to get waterproofs, uh, care packages, rucksacks. 
Uh, I mean, this is all the stuff we're talking about when we're talking about greenkeepers not being grass cutters. You know, I've had to organise all that stuff. Yeah, but that's get all the logos labelled up and sizes. You must be buzzing about that. So, have you have you been out to like behind the scenes other majors to see how the kind of volunteer uh, the volunteer numbers scale up during the week of the event? I, I was lucky enough to go up to St Andrews last year and work shadow Sandy Reid, who regarded as one of the very best in the industry. So he's the uh, links uh, courses manager over everything, uh, and so they don't need any other volunteers because they've got so many courses. Same as Port Rush, right, yeah. same as Troon. They just take from other teams. But I guess us, Royal St George's, Muirfield, uh, Leatherham, Buckdale, all look for help. Uh, help's something that we're not short of. You know, I've had so many requests, and it's been very, very difficult. We went onto a waiting list, but instead of picking from the waiting list, I wanted to take extra apprentices. So every time someone pulls out, I want to replace it by a youngster just to kind of to, to even it up. They've all actually, we've got them all staying in sight as well. So they'll be staying in bunker bins. Uh, I had, had a dream the other night. It was more of a nightmare. This is how weird I am. Woke up sweating. I was like, oh God, God. I just I had a dream that there was no bed sheets and no quilts on the bunker bins. So all the guys walked off site. I'm not working for you, Bledge. See you later. Walked out the door. So I went in and I Googled it and right enough, they don't come with bed sheets. So I was straight on the phone. We need to get bed sheets for these. £35 each. £35 a man. That's like, that's a skill. Isn't it unbelievable? Yes. I've managed. That's how, how messed up I am that I can dream about work and then solve problems in my sleep. So I mean, maybe just spend the rest of time in bed. That's better than the normal golfing dream of that one about not being able to take the club back on the first tee because there's a wall in the way. That no, I can. I can't do that either. <laughs> <laughs> so what? Um, what stage are you at now? The stands are up, are they? By the sounds of things. I think they're probably half half up. They, they pop up every week. You know, the the one that they've put up behind the six, the par three. Oh my god! What this, what a size! It just goes straight up, and there's no. Last night when I looked at it, there was no handrail on the left or the right because they hadn't finished it, which looks even stranger. You know, you could fall off the edge, but these are all like super safe. They're all Harris fenced off, so you can't get near them, and they'll stay like that. You know, that's a new thing. Whereas the the tenant village and the practice area are all on Hoylake Mean, are they? No, so the practice area is on Hoylake Mean. The tented village is. To the right of the third, to the left of the third, okay, uh, to the right of the twelfth. I mean, there's there's three huge buildings: the Origins, the Patrons. I don't know what the other one's called, but what, two of them are three story. Uh, I mean, the three story building, the Origins, which is going to be the biggest one on sixteen, is phenomenal. Uh, that's going to be good fun. Uh, and then, yeah, and they'll have a, a view looking up to the. If they can peek around the balcony, I think they might get a view up 17 as well. I'm not sure. Nice one. And what, so come on then, tell us about the 17th. So this is where it gets super complicated. I guess it used to play as the 15th downhill. Then they flipped it around to play it as the 17th. But uh, it's, I mean, it's designed by Martin Ebert. So you're hitting away away from the sea, don't you? You're hitting land. Yes, I yeah. So you 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 play up sixteen's a a long path, very long path four. Then you're hitting you're hitting to the sea. So you're hitting towards the sea, towards Wales. Wales in the background, hundred and thirty three yards, I think it is off the off the open tee. Uh, a three hundred and thirty three three hundred and thirty square yard green, which is probably 
your average parkland green, but maybe a bit smaller actually. Uh, so a very small green sloping gradually from back to front, uh, surrounded short. We've got a false front of the green, uh, and at the front we've got a very deep sand scrape, a reverted sand scrape. On the left we've got a, a deep bunker. Over the back we've got a scrape, but you shouldn't really hit it over the back. You know that's like even some of our worst members don't really do that. So I don't think that's really in play. Uh, and on the right we've got a like a, a postage stamp esque bunker. Uh, some some good drop-offs, but we have, I mean, I've worked quite hard to get the back of that, the rough off over the back of the green growing up, that the ball's a little bit long, used to end up in the scrape, but now they, they stick up, so there's a bit of leeway there. So, But do you know what? It ain't as hard as what people think. When it's when it's flat calm, uh, last two, I mean, I am not a golfer in the slightest, and I'll tell you that the last two times I've played it, uh, I've, I've, I've birdied it and then I hit it to five foot and missed it. So like it's not, it's a wedge. It was a wedge the last two times and that was off the, the 125 yard tee. Uh, if the wind blows though, it's going to be totally different. You know, it's going to, uh, if it blows an absolute gale, then I've hit four iron in there uh, because you're hitting uphill as well. You know, it can completely take your ball away, but we're talking about the best guys in the world here, Tom. You know, they, they need to be challenged. This is, uh, if the wind blows downwind, we could maybe put a back pin in. I don't I don't choose any of the pins, and they're all kind of, they probably won't be chosen until the night before, depending on where the wind's going. You know, that, that decision will be made then. But the, uh, it's a stunning golf hole. I mean, aesthetically, it looks beautiful. It doesn't stand out because... We have built more sand scrapes along along the coast now, so it's not it's not like a thing at the start when it was first made. It was just a bit too new, a bit original. It's weathered beautifully now. The sand's blown around. There's some marm grass. It's kind of integrated its way into the scrape. Uh, but I mean, it's absolutely iconic. And what better way to finish a, a an open championship than have that hole? Have people gripped on the edges of their armchairs? Uh, I just, I mean, for a, a, an aesthetic view as well, the cameras, the towers, looking from above any drone footage, it's just, it's just incredible. It'll be up there with the seventeenth at Sawgrass, if you ask me. When it comes to exciting finishes, I think it's, I think it's pretty difficult actually, having played it. So you can show me, James, how to play it. Uh, I, because when I played it, I hit. There was a little bit. It was a little bit into the wind, but it wasn't like a big gale. And I hit eight, so we played off quite a back tee. And I just watched it stall in the air and hit the false front, and mm-hmm. then it didn't. It didn't quite get into the Sanskrit, but that bunker on the right. If you're in that bunker, you're dead. Um, yeah, that can be that can be really tough, you know. And and there's a big grandstand watching everyone's demise as well in front of that one. Uh, and there's a, there's a, is there a similar bunker left? Like a small bunker not, left? Not as deep. Yeah, that's 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 fairly. Straight. That should be bread and butter for these guys. Yeah, so but there's the one on the right. Be some good volatility, volatility rate late in the round. Then, isn't there with a three-five finish? That's going to be good. Well, I mean, even if it's flat calm, if you've got six hundred, I mean, this this the open gets beamed into six hundred and sixty million households. So you can think that could potentially be over a billion people watching you hit a shot on an easy. What is a as your as I say, bread and butter stock yardage 130 yards just a little flick with a 50 degree for these guys uh but that all changes when you know that many people are watching you've got a claret jug riding on it you know i'm saying i've found it all right but i'm just playing with my mates you know it's yeah. completely different when you've got that uh, i mean 
we we do see this with open venues like um Burtdale changed seventeenth green, didn't they, ahead of Harrington's open and we had two new holes at Port Rush um a couple of years ago. So it has happened before, but it's it is an interesting thing. It's obviously obviously a talking point, so there'll be there'll be a lot of chatter about it, won't won't there during the week. Have we um any other sort of significant changes um from an architectural point of view? New back tee on the par five, I think. Uh, so the new back tee on eighteen. Uh the tenth is now well, it's, the tee's been moved forward and it's a par four. Oh, yeah. Uh, we've, we've deepened the bunker, the greenside bunker. One single bunker on that hole, what a statement. Uh, it's got a camera on it as well. We, we brought brought the revetting up another five rows uh, and sculpted the top a little bit differently. I mean, there was actually, I seen the other day, someone had sent me a video of this guy on TikTok that had, uh, it was how to get out of the Royal Liverpool oh, bunkers. So I'll try and share it with you afterwards. You see it today, yeah. it had like long black hair. And he's got it out and he's chuffed the bits. He's like, Ey. and then he's just turned his back and it's coming yeah. back and it's rolled round <laughs> like a roller coaster and it's back in the back and a footprint. And it's like, you know, that's that's going to be a tough hole. Uh, but with, as I say, the two new bunkers. Uh, and I think that's I think that's about really, yeah, I'm pretty sure. It's not huge changes, but enough to, yeah, the finish is just going to be spectacular. Yeah, awesome. We're going to have to stop talking. We've been going... Uh... Well over an hour, you know that, don't you? It looks like it, yeah. Oh, God. I told you I could rabbit on. No, You'd brilliant. regret this. It's absolutely brilliant. I think we're going to have to have you back on, James, because I, was going to, I wanted to ask you about what you think is going to happen afterwards, like when you're all hung over and it's after Lord Mayor's show. But I think you can come on. We should You should come on again and you can tell us about uh, the aftermath and how it all panned out. Restitution. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'd be more than happy to do that like, any time. I, I like blethering, so... That'd be, be, be a pleasure. Uh, to be to, to be completely honest with you, I need to go because I'm playing golf in 25 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you better get your finger out. Yeah. Good prep, this. Uh, that was absolutely amazing. Like genuinely, like some of the stuff you said there, I don't know, is has brought a sort of a uh, bit of moisture to my eye. Like the, hearing about where you grew up playing golf and your obvious passion for the game. Um, and some of the very, very sensible and but not obvious to all points you've made about um, what sort of modern day greenkeeping looks like uh, is brilliant. I'm sure the Open Week will go amazingly well for you. It sounds like you and the whole team uh, deserve it too. And like huge, huge thanks to giving up over an hour of your time for us um, in what must be a really busy time for you. Uh, it's a, it's a welcome break. Sometimes these things, you know, the, the, it's nice to it's a privilege to be asked and it's an honour to do. So I'm, I'm I'm really happy to help out. Cool. Good lad. Right. More town for me, so I have to go. Enjoy Piglets wherever you go next week, Steve, and I'll uh, see you soon. Cheers, Tom. The romance never ends. (laughs) See you soon. Thank you. Thank you.